Let's talk about the John Horgan government's blueprint for B.C. now. The throne speech was yesterday at the B.C. legislature, an economic recovery plan set to be released in the aftermath of COVID, wildfires, the deadly heat dome, flooding, lots of challenges and priorities for this government. Let's talk about it right now. We've got both sides of it for you. Andrew Mercier is the NDP MLA for Langley. I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Andrew, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Thank you. Also on the line is Peter Millobar, Liberal MLA, Kamloops North Thompson. Peter, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Always good to be on, Mike. Thanks a lot. Andrew, let me go to you first. What is the highlight of this throne speech for you? What jumped out at you? What do you think should be uh, the message to the people of B.C. today? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I'll just go back to something you said in your intro right there, which is that we have had, uh, you know, a heck of a year in terms of unprecedented flooding, the pandemic, wildfires. People have had enough upheaval in their lives. And what they want from government is to know that government's in their corner, understands the issues they're facing, uh, and is working to address them. So highlights of the throne speech for me, um, you know, I look at uh, I look at record investments in childcare and commitments to childcare. If you don't have access to affordable childcare right now as a young family, you're going through life with one hand tied behind your back. So you know, I think I'm really proud of this throne speech. I think we're doing really good things, um, and uh, and we're on the right track. Okay, Liberal MLA Peter Millibar, your thoughts. Well, you know, I think people, what they want to hear in the throne speech was was a positive uh, vision moving forward. What we heard was recycled uh, uh, statements from the past. Uh, they were referencing uh, programs that were announced and initiated three years ago that still haven't been delivered. Um, that's what people want to see. People want to see affordable child care. They don't want to see uh, a failed rollout. Like we've seen less than 10% of the, the, the spaces have been created in five years. Um, that's that's the problem with this throne speech. Was it was really a throne. I mean, Global itself had about 30 seconds on it on the news last night at 6 o'clock, and then they moved on because there was nothing in it. Okay, so that was, you know, we heard some other people complaining that there was not a lot new in the throne speech. I mean, they're generally vague by nature, but Andrew Mercier, like, what, what is new in there? What was new in that speech yesterday? Yeah, well, and I just say that this is a throne speech, Mike. This isn't the budget, and those uh, those yeah. announcements are coming. Um, in terms of the budget. But, you know, it's it's important that we let British Columbians know that we're on their side and that we're seeing through the programs we started. Like anyone that's renovated a house knows that it takes time to build something. And right now we're coming from behind in terms of building on 16 failed and inadequate years on things like health care, on things like housing. If you're a young person like me and if you're a family man like I am and you look at this, what you see is commitments to build the SkyTrain all the way to land, which is going to be transformative south of the Fraser, and it's the single biggest transportation investment in over 20 years. What, when is that going to get done, SkyTrain to Langley? When is that happening? 2028, Mike. It's two years ahead of schedule. Peter Millibar, your thoughts? Well, 2028 is uh, six years from now. You've got uh, the Massey Tunnel. That's the never-ever plan. You have child care that has failed to result in any meaningful spaces being uh, delivered. Um, health care is worse than it's ever been. Uh, we don't have a plan to deal with the shortage of health care professionals from nurses uh, onwards. That's what people needed to hear in a throne speech about the vision uh, moving forward. 
the, the bottom line is lots of uh, colorful words and people want actual deliverables. If your child was five years old and, and you were looking for childcare when the NDP took office, they're now 10, well into school, looking for after-school care. They still don't have it. They need well, you, guys had, you, guys had, you, you guys had 16 years to deliver it. Where well, was absolutely. It? And, we, and if you look at our track record of childcare spaces that were created, uh, especially in the last few years we were in government, contrary to what the NDP say, it still outpaces what they've done in the last okay. five years. Andrew Mercier. Yeah, so, you know, it, like I said, it takes time to build things to get things off the ground, especially when you have a pro- province where the economy is booming like ours and we're growing phenomenally and the demand keeps increasing and we've had our hands tied behind our back with 16 years of failed liberal policies. So we're making progress on that, Mike. I mean, I can just, you know, speak from experience in my constituency alone, over 350 new spaces have opened or been under construction since 2017. That is huge. Let, let me ask you about the... The economic recovery plan that we understand is coming and was and was hinted at in the speech yesterday, Andrew Mercier. Like, what can people expect from that? Like, what will be the priority for this government in getting this economy going and sustained and going even better? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. And I think if you talk to anyone out out there in industry right now, anyone in business or anyone working, the uh, number one, and we saw this in the labor market outlook just this week the number one issue is a need for skilled people we're going to have one million job openings in the next 10 years 80 percent of them are going to require some degree of post-secondary education so part of the economic recovery plan is going to be a workforce readiness plan to make sure that our workforce is prepared for a changing economy and that we have the people necessary for those jobs okay liberal mla peter millibar your thoughts on that well, the reality is affordability is, a, is an all-time low in terms of housing prices, record prices. Um, people aren't able to get into the market. And when you look at uh, the training and, and skills people need, there's no doubt we have a nursing shortage. I'll use Camels as an example. Thompson Rivers University, brand new nursing building uh, that was continued on from when the, we were in power. Um, it has three times as many seats as are being funded. They're sitting empty. There's a waiting list that gets turned away for nurses every single year, yet we have a nursing shortage. So if this government is actually serious about, again, deliverable versus the words, the words are always wonderful. What people need is action and actual deliverable thing, and they just simply do not know how to do that. Talking about the plan for BC with my guests, NDP MLA Andrew Mercier, Liberal MLA Peter Millibar. Peter, the Liberals have a new leader here in Kevin Falcon. And speaking of affordable housing and affordability generally, which I think is top of mind for so many people right now, especially this unaffordable housing market, you have a new leader here now who is a former real estate developer, and he says that's going to stand him well in trying to create affordable housing in the province how how are you guys going to do that like if you were in power again what would the liberals do to create affordable housing well you know i think it's important to note that uh, certainly kevin does have that that private sector experience uh part of his role was was uh, development but there was lots of other roles that he had within anthem is my understanding but but uh you know it's interesting to hear minister eby finally start to talk about supply issues after years and years and years of denying that was ever an issue and a problem um, there is no doubt uh, that we have a supply issue in British Columbia, that we need to take steps to try to address that. Uh, we've heard Kevin talking about that through the 15-month leadership race. We've heard him talking about it the first two days 
as our new leader. So I think you're going to see our policy start to roll out in the next short while. Okay. In contrast to five years of inaction, uh, while prices go through uh, record levels with this government. Okay, well, they went through the roof under you guys too. But Andrew Mercier, your thoughts? Yeah, talk is cheap. It's action that matters. And I think that the solution here isn't to go back to the guy that poured uh, gasoline on the fire in BC's housing market, which is Kevin Falcon, before turning around to cash in on it. How did he do that? How did he, how did he pour gasoline on the fire? What did he do? The, the, well, Kevin Falcon was the finance minister. Um, in the in the middle of this uh, in the middle of this crisis, that failed to take action. I mean, just look at the speculation of vacancy tax. I rent a unit right now that is on the market because of the speculation of vacancy tax. Kevin Falcon would undo those taxes and take those units off the market. Peter Peter Millibar. Well, that's simply laughable at this stage uh, for Mr. Mercy to, to do that. And, and secondly, I didn't realize we were already in the 2024 election, but apparently the NDP feel we are. Um, so I look forward to them opening up a by-election quickly to have uh, Mr. Falcon in, in the legislature with us. The reality is they've had government now for five years. Uh, they have done nothing. And, and Mr. Mercy himself said it. Uh, talk is cheap. Action is what people want. And that's exactly what I've been saying this whole interview. That's all we've had from the NDP for five years is talk and no actual deliverable action. And if you look at most of their plans, they're supposed to be take effect 2025 to 2028, okay. 2030 and beyond. Not okay. in the year and now. Right. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the latest surge in random violent attacks in Vancouver. Stranger assaults on the rise. This is sick what's happening in the city right now. Four random attacks a day in the city on average, according to the Vancouver police, including a horrifying series of knife attacks this week. Yesterday, police announced the arrest of a 30-year-old man in these incidents. Three people randomly attacked with a knife. Now, it started in Emory Barnes Park. Police say a suspect approached a 21-year-old man, asked to borrow his vape pen. The man refused. He was attacked with a knife. He is okay. He survived. A 25-year-old woman attacked on Hornby Street. She was just walking down the street. She was attacked, taken to hospital. The most scary one of all, 65-year-old man stabbed in the face while he's sitting in a restaurant on Davy Street. Unreal. Davy Street again. That neighborhood has just been brutalized with some of this violence that's going on. It's unbelievable. Now, police did make an arrest in this case. Have a listen to Vancouver Police Department spokesperson Sergeant Steve Addison here. The reason why we were able to identify uh, the suspect so quickly is because uh, police officers who were assigned to the investigation did recognize him. Uh, from previous dealings, and we were able to obtain security video in the area. Okay, Sergeant Steve Addison there. Let's discuss now with my guest, Rob Rothwell, former VPD superintendent, 33 years with the Vancouver Police Department. He he did it all there, beat cop, drug squad, undercover, rose through the ranks to be a commander there. I absolutely recommend his new book, 33 Years, The Unfiltered Memoir of a Cop. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Rob, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you, Mike, for having me. Okay, Rob, when you hear this description, I know you saw a lot of horrific stuff, 33 years on the streets of Vancouver. What do you think of these uh, these attacks that we're seeing right now? The, the savage nature of them, the frequency of them for a day. I mean, is this getting worse or was it the same in your day? 
Well, first of all, it is really alarming, and uh, knife attacks really, um, you know, they, they replace the gun in, in Canada, fortunately. So people have a difficulty getting a gun, and that's why we see knife attacks so prolific. But um, these uh, attacks have always occurred in Vancouver. It is a big city, and it does have um, crime problems and some uh, challenging uh, poverty and things like that. So these things are bound to occur. But I would agree that there seems to be these recent clusters that seem to be uh, outliers or anomalies along the way. And exactly what's driving them really is, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of speculation about that, whether it's pandemic related uh, and or, you know, failures within the, the health system and, and so forth and possibly the courts. But, you know, so when you look at it uh, kind of from the 50,000 foot level, there, there are lots of moving pieces that uh, need to be coordinated to address these things. But at the end of the day, you have, um, you know, a small sliver of uh, people coping with mental illness that aren't doing well, that fall through the cracks, that find themselves also involved with substance abuse, alcohol and uh, drugs and so forth. And it's very difficult to pull them back uh, and to get them into care and stabilized. Okay, like like you said, thir- you're 33 years with the Vancouver Police Department, and you saw a lot of this horror up close and personal. And this kind of stuff has been going on for a long time. We we cont- we've always heard about senseless crimes in the city, but when you hear this, the Vancouver Police say that there's an this is an average of four a day, four random attacks a day in the city. Was it that frequent when you were on the street? Uh, it's really difficult to say with any certainty, but I'll say this, that um, it didn't, uh, the, the attacks historically didn't seem as vicious and as wanton and, uh, and you know, violent. Um, and uh, these recent ones that we're talking about with the use of knives and uh, people attacking, uh, you know, defenseless women on the street and so forth, I would say that is, a, you know, an emerging trend that maybe wasn't as significant historically. Speaking of Rob Rothwell, former Vancouver Police Department superintendent, you heard in that clip that we played there from Steve Addison from the VPD, Rob, that police were able to make an arrest in this case. And and you heard him say there that one of the reasons they were able to find someone quickly was they were able to secure some security video, some surveillance video, and they recognized, they recognized the guy. So they, they dealt with this guy before. How? Well, and that's it. You know, I mean, there are a number of these uh, individuals that are really suffering deeply from mental illness and substance abuse and drug addiction and so forth. And uh, and the police do get to know them through their criminal activity. And uh, and this is where you know there's a bit of an impasse on whether or not these individuals are are dealt with through the criminal process or through a mental health process. I mean, what is the driver of uh, of their violence? And uh, so it, it, it's always been a bit of a challenge for the police uh, to decide, is, does this person go to hospital? Does this person go to jail? Is he, you know, will they be charged and so forth? So, yes, definitely cops on the street get to know who the problematic people are. Uh, but there are yeah. programs in place uh, through the police department and through the health services and so forth to address, uh, you, you know, people um, in an outpatient capacity and to use wraparound services of all the, the various uh, health and psychological services. But how how effective are those programs, and how widely available are they? Because I've talked to police officers who are extremely frustrated with this stuff when they see someone on the street yeah. who is violent, and they're clearly mentally ill. I mean, we all see this on the streets of the city ourselves, I and mean, we see people who are clearly going through psychotic episodes. They're mentally ill, and in many cases, like you said, 
possibly also addicted to drugs and alcohol as well on top of it. So you have a police officer who apprehends a person in this circumstance. What do they do? Do they take them to a doctor and get them assessed? So, yeah, there are two avenues, really. Um, if there have been criminal offenses committed and you have victims and so forth, um, then the individual is likely going to go to jail and, uh, and there'd be a request uh, through the court system for a psychological evaluation of the individual and, you know, and some follow-up in that regard. If um, the, the, the subject is a danger to themselves or to others, then the police do have the authority under the Mental Health Act to take that individual into custody and uh, take them before uh, medical services, so essentially transport them to hospital, where there is a program in place at St. Paul's for emergency uh, treatment of um, mentally ill individuals that are a threat to themselves or others. So it's kind of dependent on what criminal activity may have um, triggered uh, the police involvement. Okay, the frustration I hear from police, though, is uh, that quite often they can't get help for the people that they think are sick and need help, yeah. and that quite often the people just, it's a revolving door. They end up back on the street to reoffend, and, and, and you see I the same people. I too, and I've, uh, I've encountered that as well, and, uh, you know, in which, uh, you know, I can personally relate a story of, uh, you know, a young woman, and this is in my book, that um, had left a suicide note and was going to jump off the Granville Street Bridge, and fortunately we, we, we encountered her just before she reached the top of the bridge, and took her to hospital, and uh, shortly after she was released uh, from Vancouver General and was allowed to make her way home walking back over the same bridge that she was going to jump off of to get to the West End. And uh, fortunately, you know, she did make it home without jumping, but I thought, why would they release her so rapidly? And, you know, often um, the hospitals are crowded, uh, they're looking for the most severe cases because they don't have the capacity, and if they diagnose the individual as having a personality disorder rather than some mental illness or crisis, uh, they'll try and release with, you know, hopefully with some supports in place, but in this case there was nothing. What about, um, what, about what about people who end up in jail because of violent crime and then are released through parole and reoffend. I mean, people will be familiar with the Tim Horton stabbing that we saw in Vancouver recently where, where a, a tourist to Vancouver was stabbed randomly in a Tim Horton's restaurant. And the, the video of that was horrifying. There was an arrest in that case too. Thank goodness. And it turns out the guy they arrested had a long criminal record for a, 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 a it was, sentenced to five years in jail for a violent sexual assault. Do you think that there are problems with the criminal justice system with violent offenders being released? Uh, yeah, I do. I do, actually. Um, you know, uh, and I've seen that myself in cases where you just wonder, you know, why would they release this individual? Um, you know, the police really have to provide uh, a lot of evidence to show uh, that releasing the individual would be a danger to the public and that there is risk involved at the highest level and that sort of thing around around harm. Um, and, you know, the courts can hold people back, but, I mean, philosophically, I think they're always looking for a reason to release people, um, you know, because in, in some arguments it's the right thing to do unless you can actually prove that the person needs to be held in custody. So they do tend to err, I think, on the side of, uh, of releasing the individual, which in many cases has proven to be uh, a mistake. Let me play a clip here for you from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart and get your thoughts. The mayor is feeling a lot of pressure over the crime we see in, in certain neighborhoods in the city. And his comeback on it is, well, actually, crime is actually down and Vancouver is a safe city. Here's the mayor. 
There's a website that folks can go to called Geodash, which gives you all the latest up to, up to the minute uh, crime stats and trends. And as you'll see from Geodash, when you go there, that compared to last year, overall crime is down 21%, and it's almost down in every category. Again, this doesn't minimize when uh, an individual has had something uh, horrendous happen to them. But overall, this is a, a very safe city, and the police statistics definitely is the best evidence we have. Okay, so the mayor says that the city is safe, crime is down overall. I think the key there is overall. I think what we've seen is certain neighborhoods of the city, downtown, the West End, uh, Strathcona, Mount Pleasant. I mean, some of these areas, I, it just sounds like it's, it just seems more violent. There's more crime in some of those neighborhoods, but your thoughts? No, I do agree with you. Um, and to a large extent, I agree with Mayor, frankly. I grew up in Vancouver, and I've always felt Vancouver to be a very safe city, even after policing it for 33 years. But there definitely are areas that I think are in crisis right now, um, where there is much more disorder, street disorder. And, you know, there's a perception that uh, people are less safe in those areas. And, and uh I think perception, although, you know, can be reality at times because that's how people are feeling. And uh, then these events occur and they're highly publicized and uh, they really lead the public to believe that uh, things are out of control. I agree, they're not out of control, but there are certainly areas of the city that uh, I wouldn't uh, particularly feel safe walking around in at this point. All right, welcome back. My guest is Rob Rothwell, former Vancouver police officer. I recommend his book, 33 Years, The Unfiltered Memoir of a Cop. Let's go to your phone calls. Al in Surrey. Hi, Al. Go ahead. In 1955 and 56, I was 16 and 17 years old. I worked for the Vancouver Post Office delivering special mail in the downtown east side all the way out to Clark Drive from the waterfront up to Broadway. Saturdays and Sundays, I was in every back alley, every street, everything in the downtown east side delivering this mail. Safest area in Vancouver. The only time you might have a problem is if you were older and went to a beer parlor, you might get into a fight there. But on the streets, safe everywhere. And I've talked to some. Thank you for that, Al. I talked to someone who said back in back in that day that you might have someone who's a, a drunk on the street or a drunk in the alley, someone who's, you know, abusing alcohol, but just less drug addiction. Would you say that was the case? Uh, the odd time, like early on a Sunday morning, you might see one guy down on Water Street in a doorway east of Maine sleeping. That was it. And if you were smoking, yeah. which I did, you threw it down, they immediately turned around and took your butt. Also, just so you know, my in-laws had a rooming house on 12th Avenue, two blocks from City Hall. And when the policy changed that uh, Harry Rankin and Mike Horcourt wanted to put people from Essendale into the neighborhood, all the people around there that had rooming houses, that's when they started to have the odd problems. Okay, thank you. Thanks for sharing that call. Rob, I mean, well, the 1950s are obviously a long time ago, Rob, but, I mean, did the did the neighborhood, the downtown east side change over time when you were a cop? Oh, yeah, I would say that uh, I can certainly see the change down there uh, for the worst, sadly. I wish we had yeah. a magic wand and we could go back to the 50s, but... Um, yeah. 
you know, clearly the, the drug addiction and drug trafficking problems down there, I think, you know, really underwrote a lot of um, the community issues and social problems that uh, plague the downtown east side. And it's very difficult to uh, dig your way out of that. For it's sure. certainly not something we can do through arresting people and trying to jam them into the court system. Let's go to Carol on the line in Victoria. Hi, Carol. Go ahead. Hi there. I just want to say Victoria has its own uh, problems with uh, mental health of playing out on the streets of our city. But every time I go to Vancouver, I see something nasty. And last time I was there, I saw a guy in full psychotic meltdown just off Robson Street. I think it was on Burrard, just going absolutely crazy. I crossed the street to the other side to avoid that. The time before I was there up on Davie Street, there was an incident in front of a restaurant, some guy having some kind of mental health issues playing out on the streets. Cops came and picked him up and so on, created a great deal of chaos. But this is a national disgrace that we have people with mental health problems having these kinds of episodes in the streets of our cities. And we really, really need to do something. We process them through the courts. This is not a criminal offense. If they had cancer, would we leave them out on the streets like this? No. This is a mental health problem. It's a national disgrace. Carol, thank you for a good call. 30 seconds, Rob. I mean, I'm sure as as an officer, you dealt with people going through psychotic incidents. I mean, some people are high on drugs, too. But your thoughts? Yeah, they are. Often that's the case. But, you know, Mike, I think one of the problems is we don't have any form or very limited resources in the way of secure care for people. Uh, and you really can't treat uh, the mental illness till you deal with the, the drug addiction and the alcoholism or whatever it may be. You've got to deal with those uh, concerns first before you can actually begin to address the mental health problems. And so you do need this kind of multifaceted response, but you need a way of holding those people in treatment because nobody wants to be in treatment. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, but I mean, some of these individuals that are problematic don't want to be in treatment. They need to be held in treatment until they're stabilized. And then you can begin dealing with the mental illness and try and uh, establish some supports for them. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for coming on today. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about family law now in the era of COVID. As the pandemic drags into year three, the divorce rate in Canada is up. We're hearing about more separations in Canada. The phones are ringing in the offices of divorce lawyers across the country. Meanwhile, there are disputes between parents regarding child visitation rights, especially if one of the parents is unvaccinated we've got family lawyer Stuart zuckerman standing by but first have a listen to this report here now you're going to hear from global news reporter john hua and the story of an unvaccinated father who saw his child visitation rights to see his kids cut back severely by the courts have a listen to this james felt it was important to share his story after he says the court is keeping him away from his kids because he's not vaccinated against COVID-19. I think the suggestion that I'm endangering my children uh, makes me feel shocked. The decision made in BC Supreme Court leading to a dramatic decrease in parenting time. A draft of the order shows two hours on Thursdays and Sundays. James says that's down from four days and three nights, or 63 hours a week. The amount of quality time that I have with my children is so drastically reduced. It's next to nothing. On top of that, his parenting time is limited to outdoors. Driving with the children also not permitted. The children cannot spend time with anyone else indoors unless his former spouse is shown proof of vaccination. 
and masks must be worn at all times. Okay, let's talk about that now. Wow, look at the restrictions on this unvaccinated dad here. He did have 63 hours of access to his kids before this. Now that's been cut down to just four hours a week. He is unvaccinated. He can only see his kids outdoors. He must wear a mask. He can't drive with his kids. Let's discuss now with my guest, Stuart Zuckerman, attorney at Zuckerman Law Group. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Stuart, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, Stuart, when people hear a ruling like this, I mean, this shows you what's happening in this modern world here with family law and COVID. You got an unvaccinated dad. Wow, he has got real severe restrictions on his ability to see his kids. Your thoughts about that case? Well, you know, it's difficult to comment without reading the full decision. I did attempt to find that decision. I found a very similar decision uh, just made uh, two days ago in New Brunswick where the father went from a 50-50 parent to two hours twice a week. I haven't found that BC case. In the New Brunswick case, the um, the issue was one of the children is immunocompromised. Father is an anti-vaxxer. Um, and it went to court. Father presented his, um, what he found, articles from the internet about the risks of vaccination and uh, all his anti-vax uh, uh, supporting articles. Mother pointed to the federal government and the provincial government health authorities uh, both stating the stating that the vaccines were safe and recommending the following of the mask mandates and uh, um, uh, the various protections with respect to immunosuppressed people. And the judge, you know, the focus of all of our, every province has a, a, a family law act that uh, sets out rights about, about parenting time. And it's not focused on the interests of the parents. It's focused on the best interests of the child that is before the court. So each case turns on its own facts. And if you have a family yeah. that has an immunosuppressed child, then you gotta, you got to protect that child. So, um, you know, if the father, the simple solution is the father gets vaccinated, he gets his time back. That's what the order in New Brunswick said. I don't, I'm not certain if the BC order said the same thing. But, you know, th- this is consistent with the decisions that have been, that have been made across Canada and, and within BC. There have been several decisions uh, in the last month alone in BC, where the uh, one parent opposed the child being vaccinated with the new children's vaccines, the other parent wanted it, went to court, and in both cases, the court went with the, the federal and provincial government recommendations and ordered that right. the child should be vaccinated over the objections of the, in one case, the mother, in one case, the father, and in one BC case, the daughter herself, who was, I think, 11 years old, was objecting to getting vaccinated, as was her mother, and the father applied, and the court uh, permitted the father to take the child for vaccination. So, you know, the focus is the best interest of the child. Right, right. You know, I, I think you raise some crucially important points there about how all of these cases turn on their own individual facts, and and certainly if you have a child who is immunocompromised, that is a, a key a key component that I'm I'm certain would be considered by by a judge. Watching this story on global news last night, you know, I think a lot of people as they watch that might have been screaming at their television sets at this guy, like, just go get vaccinated. You want to see your kids go get vaccinated. Exactly. But, you know, it is what it is. I mean, he's not vaccinated. It doesn't appear he's going to get vaccinated. Do you, when you have a situation like that and one parent has severe restrictions on access to their kids because they're unvaccinated, do they have any right of appeal there? Can they appeal that anywhere, or is that it? Uh, absolutely. Anytime a decision is made at Supreme Court, there's, there's a couple of different levels of appeal. First of all, m- most of these early decisions 
when you, the very first time you go to court, they're either made in provincial court by a provincial court judge or they're made in Supreme Court by a master usually, which is the lowest level uh, of a judge in, in the BC court system. So you can appeal either from a provincial court judge to a Supreme Court judge or from a Supreme Court master to a Supreme Court judge. And then even then, you can then appeal from a Supreme Court judge to the Supreme Court Court of Appeal and be in front of three judges. And finally, after that, you can appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, so uh, there are a, a number of levels of appeals. It's very difficult to appeal because you have to show that the judge made a significant error in fact or in law. That is, you have to prove that from the judge's reasons that he misunderstood the evidence that was put before him, that's a mistake of fact, or that he misapplied the law. Speaking of Stuart Zuckerman, family law attorney, Zuckerman Law Group, with COVID continuing, we're going into year three of this pandemic right now. Stuart, is your phone ringing off the hook over there at Zuckerman Law? Like, are you seeing a lot of people inquiring about divorce, separation, child access, child custody, and especially as they relate around the issues around vaccinations and the pandemic? Yeah, there's definitely been an increase, probably about a third, maybe a 35% wow. um, increase in uh, in business over the last two years. Um, I, I, a lot of that also has to do with the fact that property values have gone up so much. Uh, excuse me, with the, you know, you have a 25 to 40% increase in property values in the last two years. So the equity in houses have gone up tremendously. And you combine that with people living under the pressure of being cooped up in the same house, not being able to go out to restaurants, um, not being able to socialize at work if they're working from home. And that puts a lot of pressure on relationships. So if you have a relationship that got, that has already has cracks yeah. uh, in it, uh, you know, that magnifies those cracks and people get very frustrated with each other quickly. And when they then look and say, oh, my house has now got two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 more, or in some cases, five, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars more equity than it did two years ago. Yeah. Um, a lot of people want to head for the exit and get their fifty percent and get out. Yeah. And so that, to, to me, that's been one of the greater motivating uh, factors for people has been the, the money situation is that they can get out and restart because the equity in their home has grown so much that they're, you know, instead of getting one or two hundred thousand, they're getting four or five hundred thousand, and and that makes a big difference in. Uh, restarting your life yeah right oh i can just imagine when you've got that much money on the line boy there's more to fight over there yeah you'll be calling a lawyer for sure let me ask you about um about vaccination issues because let's say you've got uh parents are separated or divorced let's say one parent has has custody of the kids primary custody of the kids and that parent does not want the kids to be vaccinated but the other parent does can that result in a judge reversing the the custody ruling and in giving custody to the to the parent that does want to vaccinate the kids it, or no it, it can but uh. not the the normal approach and, and this is one of the cases i mentioned earlier one of the earlier bc decisions in, in january that came out was the mother had uh a final uh decision making authority um uh, I'm sorry, I think it was a Saskatchewan case, but the same thing would apply in BC. The mother had a court order giving her the final decision-making authority over medical decisions, and she refused to get the vaccine for her daughter, who was 11 and had diabetes. Uh, the daughter herself uh, did not want to get the vaccine. The father 
uh, went to court to get an order to get the daughter uh, vaccinated. And um, the court looked at the evidence before it. And it, what the mother presented was not sufficient to say that it wasn't in this child's interest to be vaccinated. There was nothing from the child's uh, family doctor or endocrinologist mm-hmm. saying that she should not be vaccinated. It was just the mother relying on articles from across most of the United States, but other areas of the world that said children with diabetes are have a greater risk uh, uh, of complications resulting from being vaccinated. And the father simply relied on provincial court health authorities and the federal government health authorities saying she should be vaccinated. And the, the court took what's called judicial notice of the uh, both federal and provincial court health authorities findings that vaccinations uh, are in children in the children's best interest and help protect them uh, from uh, COVID and from hospitalization and severe illness. And there was uh, no specific expert uh, that was being of assistance to uh, the daughter's situation and and uh, went with that order that the father was permitted to take the daughter against wow. the mother's will and against the daughter's will to be vaccinated. He did order that the family doctor be consulted and that that the that if the family doctor of that specific child had reasons for her not to be vaccinated, that that be brought forward. But in the absence of that, she'd be vaccinated. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about COVID and divorce with my guest, Stuart Zuckerman, Zuckerman Law. Lots of calls. Carlos and Langley. Hi, Carlos. Go ahead. Hi. I would like to know what might happen in a situation where both parents don't want to have the child vaccinated and the government decides that it is in the best interest of the child to be vaccinated, can they step in and use the child protection laws to take custody away from both parents? Because that seems like the logical conclusion to what this court decision says, that the court is willing to take uh, access away from a parent. Why not both parents? Okay, Stuart. So, uh, yes, under the uh, Family Child Service Act, if somebody reports to a social worker that a child is in need of protection because their parents are uh, refusing to get vaccinated or refusing to vaccinate the child, then it's possible for a social worker to attend to the family home, make queries, and if they conclude as a result of what they hear at the family home and observe at the family home that the child is uh, not, that the child is in need of protection, they can uh, bring an application before the courts to have the child removed from the care of the parents for the purposes of getting uh, the child vaccinated, or if neither parent is vaccinated and the child, for example, is immunosuppressed, uh, not only seek to have the child vaccinated, but seek to have the child put in foster care uh, pending the wow. parents being uh, vaccinated. That's a possibility. I haven't seen it happen in any province in BC. Normally, these things are only occur in the superior courts when one of the parents brings an application under the Presiding Family Law Act to do okay. those kinds of uh, but the potentially that is there. Squeeze another call in. Sharon in East Van. Hi, Sharon. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. I Hi. think it's very sad for these children that they are witnessing their dad care more about not getting a vaccine than about spending time with them. And I, I just think that's a really sad state of affairs for those kids. Yeah, no, I feel for the kids stuck in the middle of it. Stuart, you see this every day, I'm sure, in your, your job. Yeah, I, you know, the, the more frequent example that I've seen historically in the 32 years that I've practiced is dad or mom is an alcoholic or a, a drug addict, and um, the uh, one parent applies to court to, to re- reduce or remove their 
parenting time on the basis that they're exposing the children to their use of the drug or they're exposing the children to marijuana smoke or to their paraphernalia or other drug users in the home. And uh, many times those parents, unfortunately, they lose their parenting time and they choose to continue to use drugs rather than to see their kids. So, wow. you know, the focus is always on what's best for the children and the court is always going to make the orders that protect the best interests of the children. Right. right. Bill and Kamloops. Hi, Bill. Go ahead. Good day, and how are you today, sir? I'm good. Go ahead. Excellent. Um, I just have a quick query. Uh, in regard to the, uh, you know, the court's ruling that uh, over one parent or the other, because of their beliefs or because of the information and knowledge that they've garnered, um, there is an awful lot of information out on the, on the World Web from many different countries, from a whole bunch of credible virologists, doctors, and such. It, it's just... Uh, it's, What's your question? What's your question? Running well, my, out of time. My, well, my question, my question is, is, is if it's Canadian government. Oh, okay, you're, you're, yeah, I mean, you're breaking up, you're breaking up too bad. Go ahead. I've got the essence, Mike. Mike, I've got the essence of his question. The essence okay. is, look, you've got thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of articles on the Internet. Uh, some of them may appear credible. Uh, that say, here's the risks, here's the downside to vaccines. This has existed long before COVID. Uh, you know, the MMMR, mumps, measles, rubella vaccine. There's lots of, you remember Jenny McCarthy, that celebrity 20 sure. years ago. Uh, she led a whole movement, anti-vax movement. Uh, there was lots of articles then as well. And there was lots of cases that went to court then of a parent who got uh, you know, I want to say the word sucked into believing kind of the celebrity uh, reports that went on the air about, the, you know, the vaccine causing autism and tried to prevent this. And the, and the court follows okay. what's in the best interest of the child based on the reports that are before it. So right. if you have a medical report about your child by a doctor who has seen your child and says your child should not get the vaccine and it backs up his report, the court will take that Thank into you. account and then refuse the vaccine. Thank you, Stuart. On the evidence before the court. All right, welcome back. And here we go now with our great single-use plastic debate on the show. Now, this is an issue we have covered on previous shows. It's a super hot topic right here in Vancouver after the recent 25-cent disposable cup fee in the city. Now under review by City Hall, the city also working to phase out single-use plastics across Canada. This issue is also heating up. The Justin Trudeau government has now released some long-awaited regulations for a single-use plastic ban across the country. We may see that kick in later this year. Plastic straws, plastic stir sticks, six-pack rings, grocery bags, plastic cutlery, all on the list here to be banned and phased out. All right, is this the smartest strategy? Will this ban make a difference and we've got an awesome panel standing by to discuss this first have a listen to this now here is prime minister justin trudeau announcing that single-use plastic ban have a listen how do you explain dead whales washing up on beaches around the world their stomachs jam-packed with plastic bags or albatross chicks photographed off the coast of hawaii their bodies filled to the brim with plastic they've mistaken for food how do i tell them that against all odds you'll find plastic at the very deepest point of the Pacific Ocean 36,000 feet down 
As parents, we're at a point where we take our kids to the beach and we have to search out a patch of sand that isn't littered with straws, styrofoam, or bottles. That's a problem. All right, Justin Trudeau there. Let's discuss now with my guests. We've got both sides of it for you today. Karen Wersig on the line. Karen is a program manager at Environmental Defense, and I'm very pleased to welcome Karen to the show. Hi. Hi. Hi, Karen. Thanks a lot for doing this. Also on the line is David Clement, North American Affairs Manager at the Consumer Choice Center. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on again. Thank you very much. Okay, I appreciate both of you being here. You're on opposite sides of this one. Karen, let me go to you first. Can you give me your take on a a single-use plastic ban in Canada? Is that the right way to go, and what difference will it make? It's a very good first step. We do need to get some of the most damaging uh, and unrecyclable pieces of single-use plastic out of use, and that means out of the environment, out of our waste streams, um, off our beaches. So it's a good first step. Will it solve the whole problem of plastic pollution? No. Now, when is that set to kick in? Is that supposed to become the law in Canada later this year? Is that the plan? Uh, that's what we hope. The, the draft yeah. res- uh, regulations uh, are have a bit of a slower timeline, but we hope that the final regulations will bring all of this into effect. You can't sell or manufacture, or we hope export these plastics starting um, by the end of this year. Okay, David Clement, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the wrong direction. Um, I mean, there's a variety of reasons. Uh, if we look at other governments who've evaluated. Um, plastic use plastic bags as an example against the alternatives uh, almost always they come out um, more environmentally friendly than what those alternatives are whether they be cotton bags or paper bags uh, and often by factors of five ten even a hundred and so the evidence isn't there to suggest that us banning plastic bags is good for the environment. And I would challenge the idea that this is actually going to do anything uh, meaningful in regards to global plastic waste. Because if we look at where it comes from, 81% of it comes from rivers in Asia. A third of it comes from the Philippines alone. Uh, We're talking about countries who are developing or, or underdeveloped, who don't have the infrastructure to collect all of this stuff. And that's really where most of it ends up in our ocean. Hey, David, let me ask you something. Like, It sounds almost com- completely counterintuitive to argue that a, mm-hmm. pa- a paper bag is actually worse for the environment than a plastic bag. How do you come to that sure. conclusion? Briefly. The, the, yeah, the Environment Ministry in Denmark essentially took 15 uh, environmental indicators and ranked um, paper, plastic bags versus all of the alternatives. And you need to reuse a paper bag... Uh, 43 times in order for it to be as environmentally friendly as a single-use plastic bag. And, okay, Car- I mean, Karen. I'm sure, I'm- Karen, are you buying that? No, I mean, I think first of all, we're we're not in favor of just replacing single-use um, the single-use band items with other single-use items. In some cases, that'll be, you know, single-use plastic uh, paper or glass may be used metal, but that should be a last resort. And, you know, there are a lot of debates around these so-called life cycle analyses about, you know, using plastic versus other materials. What those analyses never take into account is the burden of the waste on the environment. We do not see paper bags choking whales or turtles in the ocean. 
paper dissolves and it goes back and becomes compost. What we see with plastic is, you know, a dangerous material once it's released into the, into nature. And it, it includes often a lot of dangerous additives that float around in our bodies, in our waterways, uh, that really we need to, to put an end to it. Now, we're not saying, please, just replace every single-use item with another single-use bag. Like, please do not ever use a cotton bag once and throw it away. That would be terrible. Yeah. But we do need to, what this ban does give us the opportunity to do, and we hope the federal government helps with this, is to figure out how to reuse more things, how to make that more convenient. In Vancouver, what we hope to see is reusable cups in cafes. We don't need to see cups and lids littered all over the place and, and you know, okay. non-recyclable in our garbage pails, right? Okay, David, what do you think of that? Yeah, so, I mean, on the life cycle analysis, I think um, it's a little disingenuous to say they're not taking into account the other um, externalities. I mean, we're talking about ozone depletion, human toxicity in regards to cancer, human toxicity in regards to non-cancer effects, ecosystem toxicity, resource depletion. These are pretty thorough, and it's not just Denmark, it's the United Kingdom and others. Uh, And so the idea that there's some obscurity to what these government researchers have evaluated, I think, is is, um, misguided. Um, in regards to whether or not people are going to reuse these things, I think it's a very large leap to assume that someone's going to pull up to their fast food restaurant of choice, provide their own bag, which may or may not have food safety um, complications, their own cup. It just seems both in, from a feasibility issue Uh, It's problematic. And then what happens is you have people using alternatives that are worse for the environment. And so I don't see a situation where where from an environmental standpoint, we come out winning. Karen, let me ask you about the point that David made there that this is largely, he argues, largely a developing world problem or a third world problem when we talk about plastic in the ocean. You heard Justin Trudeau there talk about whales watching up on the beach with their their stomachs full of plastic bags. Would you uh, would you uh, Say, would you agree that most of that plastic is coming from developing countries and not from Canada? Most of the plastic in the world is manufactured in places like Canada, the U.S., and Europe, and other oil-rich countries. Whatever plastic is washing up along, um, you know, rivers in Asia is likely made and sold by companies that are not headquartered there. So first of all, there's that problem. Second of all, yes, certain Asian countries have larger populations than us and without, um, you know, are likely to have more plastic waste. But Canadians are the second highest users per capita per person of plastic in the world following only the United States. So this is our problem. We continue to export plastic waste, by the way, not just plastic products, but plastic waste around the world. A documentary uh, on Radio Canada this weekend or last week showed that um, Canadians are exporting non-recyclable plastic garbage in paper containers to India where they're being burned you know, in, in plants to and burned and just left on the on the roadside and burned in open pits. It is not right. Canada, this is Canada's problem. Okay. We have some of the biggest no. plastic manufacturers in the world located here, and we it, it's up to us to help 
solve that problem. Okay, Dave, David, David, real, yeah. real quick, and then we fit in a break here. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, the answer to your question is yes, it is a developing world problem. 81% of ocean plastics come from Asian rivers. Over 90% come from 10 source rivers in the developing world. Yes, we manufacture plastic, but all of the alternatives are more expensive, and it seems incredibly cruel to say, hey, countries who are developing, while you're impoverished, we're not going to send you these cheaper alternatives. We're just going to stop sending you these products. Now, I agree with my colleague here on plastic waste and I, on, on plastic waste being exported. Ironically, the conservatives put forward a motion to ban the export of that waste, and the liberals voted it down, which makes you okay. really scratch your head. All right, welcome back to our plastics debate. Uh, my guests are Karen Worsig, Environmental Defense, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center. Lots of calls on this one. Steve and Coquitlam. Hey, Steve, go ahead. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. I'd just like to say there is no way Canada is responsible for dumping anything, especially plastics, in the in the ocean for uh, for the. Uh, you know, for the uh, whales and stuff. I, I, I think, you know what, everybody should be looking at China. They're known for that kind of thing. And I'd like to know why everybody's afraid to go to China about this pollutant, that they're the ones doing it, not okay. us. There's okay. no way we are. Okay, Karen, I guess your point was, all right, maybe we're not dumping it in the ocean, but Canada is making the plastic that ends up in the ocean, correct? Well, the federal government found that about 30,000 tons of plastic waste is littered every year. A certain amount of that will end up in all of our water systems, fresh water and the ocean. So it's not true that we're not dumping plastic into the ocean, first of all. Second of all, any, any waste that we export it, you know, can end up easily in the ocean. Third of all, we haven't even talked about the impact of plastics going to incinerators like the one in the greater Vancouver area and into landfills and what that kind of pollution uh, creates when it's burned or buried David, for local communities. David Clement. That's not the only alternative. The only, the, only, the alternatives to us are more broad than landfills and incinerators. I mean, virtually all plastic, including the ones we're talking about, um, can be repurposed, can be recycled, or can be uh, reconfigured through chemical depolymerization and turned into a variety of different products, whether it's resin pellets, tiles, high-strength high graphene, which would significantly disrupt the construction industry for the better. Um, and so it's not that we just have to continue doing what we're doing, which is landfills yeah. um, and recycling what we can. There's another way to go about this. And okay. I think that our government's really missing the mark on that. Back to the phone lines, Mike and Duncan. Hi, Mike, go ahead. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking my call. Um, we've got another major environmental pandemic coming, and that's these, these biohazard face masks. You can't get out of your car at a store. You can't walk down the street. They're strewn everywhere. They go into our waterways. We're going to be in for a really bad situation with these masks, and I'd like to hear your comments from your panel. Karen, your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, you know, the growth in, in personal protective equipment during the pandemic has shown us um, and, and the, the amount of litter we've seen is, is really striking. Yeah, people have to be responsible with their masks when they're finished wearing them. Where cloth masks will do, um, people should be using reusable masks. Where you need a medical-grade mask, 
make sure you dispose of it properly, pull the ear holes open at the end of life. And what we'd like to see from the federal government is more research on reusable um, personal protective equipment. There's been some research funded on this. We need more. Uh, This is a worldwide problem. We're probably not going to see the end of personal protective equipment anytime soon. And, And so... We need to figure out how to um, get more more sustainable material. Right. Let's get another call in here. Bruce in Richmond. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, David, I had touched on it, but I'd like to know why, whenever we hear about this, we're talking about banning straws. Why are we not using pyrolysis, which can basically repurpose most household plastics into oil or diesel, which can find an end user? Why are we not using, say, plasma gasification, which can take most of our waste, not just including plastic, and it is repurposed into a tar-like substance that currently India is using for most of its newer roadways. All we hear is banned straws, all right? David, David, could you put that into understandable English there for me? I mean, it's, it's... In broader terms, depolymerization and repurposing, basically restructuring the chemical bonds in a nutshell. I mean, there's a a community in Alberta who's essentially doing this with plastic waste and infusing it into asphalt to create durable roads that don't leach, that don't need to be repaved as often because they're more durable. There are a variety of solutions, but unfortunately, we put the horse blinders on from a regulatory perspective, and we want to pass laws that make us feel like we're doing something for the environment. But I don't think that this, uh, that the approach of bans really is as effective okay. as, as the proponents would say. Can, can I, okay. Go ahead, Karen. We got one can minute I left. Weigh in here? I, yep. Really plain language on what that is. It's plastics incineration. It's burning plastics in your neighborhood. It is not the solution. The, the, the technology is extremely expensive, like any incineration. And all it does is require us to create more and more waste to feed the beast. It's not the answer. Okay. I, w- I want to thank yeah, both of you. Go ahead, David, real quick. Just real quick. I mean, uh, there's a consumption problem. We're going to use other products. And so it's just waste by different virtue, unless you want to completely restructure how Canadians live their lives, which I think is naive, um, they're just going to switch to other products. And as I've already said, those are not necessarily beneficial. 